Hello, this is Dr. Paul Sachs. I'm Editor-in-Chief of Open Forum Infectious Diseases, and welcome to the OFID podcast. And as a reminder, that's OFID, not OFID. I'm here today with Dr. Grace Farris, Chief of Hospital Medicine at Mount Sinai West Hospital in New York City, and, no exaggeration, a brilliant cartoonist. I first became aware of her work soon after the publication of The Poet Study, which us ID nerds will all recognize as the partial oral versus intravenous antibiotic treatment of endocarditis. I'd read the study, I'd seen it summarized in numerous places, but never so succinctly and graphically and entertainingly as the way she did it with a simple cartoon that I imagine she must have sketched during or after a journal club. It was as if the New Yorker cartoonist Roz Chast had been crossed with the medical illustrator Frank Netter. It was brilliant. And ever since then, I've been a huge fan of her work, which is regularly published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, among other places. Grace, welcome, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Paul. That was such a nice intro. Well, it's totally deserved. Oh, thank you. Yeah, the poet trial, one of my colleagues did a journal club on, and I illustrated mostly his slides. He's a master journal club reviewer. How lucky of him to have someone in the audience at his journal club like you. (laughs) So it's always interesting to hear how people got their start in medicine. So what is your story? So I became interested very early when I was in high school. I was doing a lot of volunteering at a hospital in Austin, where I'm from. So I applied to one of these eight-year medical programs when I was in high school. And I got in and I felt like I was the luckiest person ever because, you know, I have a lot of interests. And so I wanted to take a lot of languages and do some art in college, and it gave me this opportunity to do everything. So it was great. You mentioned art. When did you start cartooning? And is that the right word? I mean, is there a preferred terminology for the kind of drawings you do? I think cartooning is right. Some people say illustrating, too. Hmm. I've been doing that forever, all through childhood. And then in college, I wrote a daily comic Hmm. in the paper that was really terrible. (laughs) (laughs) It's findable on the internet, I assume? I think so, but it's not super easy to find. I wanted to put one on my website, and I had to call through a lot of them before I found one that I felt was somewhat acceptable. But it was autobiographical, so I definitely started using the same avatar that I use now back then. It was all about my college love life, and I didn't really have a love life. <laughs> it was like really not about anything. Yeah. Well, everything that's done in college is autobiographical. Isn't that true? Yeah, yeah, exactly, because you, you don't have very many experiences at that point. So You said growing up you were always drawing, and was there someone in your family or a friend or an artist that influenced you or that got you into it? Yeah, my mom is an artist, and I have an aunt who's a professional artist. And then I have a great aunt who was a medical illustrator. Mm. I have one of her journals from her high school, which graduated from in 1918, so almost 100 years. Wow. Yeah, but her general chemistry test was almost identical to my high school chemistry papers. Fascinating. Yeah. I've noticed after following you on Twitter, and we'll come back to that later, that there's this community of artists and cartoonists out there in Dr. Land. Tell us a little bit about that community and those people who are involved. Is it called graphic medicine? Yeah, well, the bad doctor, whose real name is Ian Williams, he's a physician in the UK. He coined the term graphic medicine. He and a few others formed the graphic medicine group, and they, they started meeting about 10 years ago. They were using graphic medicine to describe any kind of use of comics or sequential art 
around different healthcare experiences. It's a great community because it's it's not just physicians, it's nurses, social workers, therapists, patients and caregivers who make comics about their experiences. There are a lot of people in academia studying comics and studying how comics describe healthcare. So it's very interdisciplinary. I just attended the most recent conference. Each year it's themed, and this year it was around queering slash querying graphic medicine and thinking about who's included in comics making and who is like not able to participate, which voices are not being represented. So it's just a fascinating community. And how long was that meeting and where did it take place? It was about three days and it, it took place this year in, in the UK. It alternates generally between North America and Europe, I guess. Last year it was in Vermont. Next year, it'll be in Toronto. I would imagine that the PowerPoint presentations are pretty entertaining in that meeting. Oh, yeah. So last year focused more on how people go about making comics. And this year, I think it was more about theories. And there are just so many interesting perspectives. They had a whole panel on motherhood in comics, which is something that I've become really interested in. Absolutely. I was going to cover that a bit later, but the title of your column in the Annals of Internal Medicine is called Dr. Mom. And I've noticed many of your cartoons, both in the Annals of Internal Medicine and elsewhere, focus on this intersection between being a mother and a doctor. By the way, one of my absolute favorites was your description of how patients go from telling you you're too young to be a doctor, you're too young to be a mother, then to stop saying anything at all. And then in the last panel of the cartoon, you say, I really must be getting old. That's absolutely terrific. Um, Can you tell me why that topic is so important to your work? Well, I became a hospitalist about eight years ago, and my older son is seven and a half now. So post-residency, almost my entire career has been as a physician and mom. So there was a very, very brief period when I didn't have a kid. It's interesting. I've been trying to think about the intersections and being a physician, or at least for me, like the most satisfying version of being a doctor, you really have to be very selfless. Like, you know, when you're talking about Mm -hmm. the ID doctors who are incredibly caring and put so much time and I think some of my best hospitalist experiences have been when I stay late and really put 110% into coordinating something or having mm-hmm. complex discussions. So to go from that identity to motherhood, which is also something where you're yeah. trying to be selfless, yeah. there's yeah. not that time for yourself. It's just not clear where that is. It pretty much vanishes. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking as, as you may know, I'm married to a doctor and she is just amazing what she was able to accomplish by both being really primarily responsible for raising our two kids. I mean, I participated, but like most couples, I think she she was better at it, and she took ownership of that process and also working full-time. So it is really extraordinary. And would she go to Grand Rounds or those early meetings? Well, that's exactly why so much of what you write resonates, because every time I'm invited to a 7 a.m. meeting or a meeting that takes place at, say, 5.30, I think back to when we had little kids at home, and every one of those meetings 
for both of us, was just an enormous challenge. And I, I don't know that people really appreciate that. Yeah, I have a meeting that takes place at 745 once a month. And every single time that date comes around, even though it's recurring, it's like the world stops. <laughs> we have to like re-figure out what we're going to do. So it's like, you know, I would like to go to Grand Rounds and I want to attend these mm-hmm. professional sure. development activities. But then at the same time, I also want to take my kids to school. That aspect, it's definitely a place of privilege, but that mm-hmm. feeling of wanting to make a carbon copy of yourself and be in two places at once. Exactly. One of my favorite colleagues, and she's a brilliant ID clinician, can't come to one of our weekly clinical conferences. And she basically said, when I had my third kid, I realized I couldn't go anymore. It was sad for me, but I completely, completely get it. And being your cartoons, being a really nice way to describe this tension for working mothers. I'm going to get back to social media for a second. I did discover your work on Twitter, I admit it, and I told you already it was the poet study summary. I gather that social media is very important for distributing your work and getting it out there, and I'm wondering how you cultivate it without having it take over your whole life. Oh, yeah, and I also would like to hear your Twitter origin story (laughs) (laughs) because I'm pretty sure that I found your podcast in late 2017. Was it going then? Oh, it's been going on forever. Okay. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Yeah, I think I found it sometime in 2017, and I'm sure through Twitter. I'm sure somebody yeah. retweeted it. But I, I'm much more invested in Instagram now mm-hmm. of course. <laughs> uh, because it's just so easy to look at images on Instagram, and it's easy to prepare them. Med Twitter, for me, has been a really nice way to transition from when I was working in Boston and had this really rich academic group that I was a part of and to moving to New York and being discombobulated in a very different setting. And that has helped me feel like I'm still connected and have a sense of what's new or what people are arguing about. It gives me a sense of community. Absolutely. I had a Twitter account for probably six or seven years, and I basically had no idea what the whole thing was and why people even paid attention to it. And it just seemed like a place where people could make fools of themselves and get into terrible controversies and internet squabbles. And so I stayed away. And then eventually the person who convinced me to try to go back to it was someone who I work with at the uh, New England Journal Medicine Journal Watch site. And she said, you know, this is a great place to learn about other aspects of medicine, not just your own, and also learn more about your aspect of medicine. And then she said, it's a good way to promote your own work. Mm-hmm. And that's what grabbed me. So I have found it very entertaining. And there's, there's a lot of pushback from people in my generation, but we ultimately, I think most of us find it rewarding. Instagram, by the way, is perfect for your medium. I agree. Uh, I have a couple of other questions to ask you, if I might. I was looking at your website and something in your CV caught my eye, which is that you spent a year as a fellow in bioethics. What was that experience like and what did it teach you? That was a great opportunity that I did concurrently with my hospitalist job. And it's a wonderful fellowship because it's set up for people who are doing clinical work, but also sometimes you'll have journalists or um, lawyers take it. And for me, I I had been doing some medical ethics at Beth Israel where I was because we had a liaison program where we would run some ethics discussions quarterly. And so I wanted to have a better background in medical ethics, and it definitely gave me that. I ended up making a comic for my final Mm. project. That was also around the time that I was exploring making comics. My boss had suggested that I submit to the new section in the annals, the graphic medicine section. That was around the same time. That fellowship introduced me to the whole idea of microethics, which I'm still really interested in, which is 
not the giant, should you pull the plug questions, but the smaller <laughs> questions, you know, that do cause a lot of like moral distress. And so when I do ethics case discussions with our group now, those are the ones that I'd like to explore because they, mm-hmm. they're very gray. Microethics, of course, to this ID doctor, you're not talking about microbes. <laughs> I'm sure there are microbe microethics too. <laughs> there, there probably are. But when you say microethics, you mean things that are not in that giant, what would you do? You have a potential life-saving therapy and it's only available for one person and more than one person needs it. So what's a microethics question? Well, some of the questions are things like when you're going to consent somebody for blood transfusion, what exactly do you tell them? Mm-hmm. Social media has a lot of examples. How much of a story is it acceptable for you to tell about a patient encounter online? Lots of gray zones. And I think it's interesting to hear people's reasoning, especially social media. I did a microethics and social media session about five or six years ago, and a lot of the answers would be very different now. Because at the time, everybody said, oh, doctors should not be on social media unless you have something that you really need to tell people about. There's no reason to have a voice. Like People shouldn't be politically active. And I think a lot of that has changed. One thing that I want to give you credit for is that one of the ways that doctors can really misbehave on social media is by revealing confidential information about patients. And that's an absolute no. Yeah. It can't be done. And the way you depict patients in your cartoons is really quite brilliant and quite human. And so I wanted to just give you a compliment there because I look at these drawings you do and I recognize the patients as patients that potentially I could take care of in the hospital and yet they're obviously not any single individual person. So you're not breaking their confidentiality by depicting an image of a patient. You do a beautiful job. So okay. well done. Yeah, there's a recurring violet-haired character. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are many characters that kind of remind me, as I alluded to earlier, of Roz Chast characters. <laughs> And since I think she's absolutely brilliant, by saying that it looks like she's influenced you, it it is another compliment. So I have a couple of other queries, if I may. You're a hospitalist, and that's a relatively new specialty. How did you end up choosing that field? I had a lot of wonderful mentors when I was in residency, and I think that probably contributed a lot. I still feel like I just graduated residency, but I didn't, you know. (laughs) Well, you've got kids, and that's the fast-forward button on your life. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. One of my mentors, we had a case, I think it might have been a, a case of Iris, There's an ID Mm -hmm. tie-in. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And we were talking about the management of it. And the attending said, well, Grace, how would you manage this? And I said, oh, you know, I'm only a PGY1. I have never seen a case of this before. And he said, oh, well, I'm a PGY10. I haven't seen a case of this either. (laughs) And I was thinking, oh, my God, I'm like a PGY10 now. (laughs) I'm already there. So I I had some great mentors. And I, I enjoy all of the the aspects of hospital medicine, especially the parts that I guess most people don't want to do. I enjoy like the social aspect. (laughs) It's not that I love hospitals, but I don't mind being in a hospital and I find the microcosm element of it where everyone has a role to be just really interesting. Mm. I like the wide variety of cases that we see, Mm. especially some of the harder situations I think can be rewarding, I guess. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if that's the right word. ID doctors all do hospital-based medicine. You know, we're one of the few specialties where 
many of us do both. Yeah. Do hospital-based medicine and outpatient medicine. But one of the things that Atul Gawande has said about the joys of working in a hospital is the incredible diversity of people, not just there as patients, but also as people working there. It is really remarkable when you walk down the hallway in a urban hospital, just the variety of faces one sees. It's very, very rewarding. Oh, yeah. And now in New York, multiply yeah. that times a million. <laughs> yes, I bet. It's still really interesting. And then I think the other part is the rounds. You know, I've always enjoyed rounds and the teaching aspect is mm-hmm. still really gratifying. Yeah, definitely. So I'm an ID doctor and you're talking to a bunch of ID doctors. Mm-hmm. By the way, I should say a lot of li- listeners are ID pharmacists and nurses and other clinicians. Do you have any advice for us as we interact with your hospitalist-led teams? We have an ID pharmacist who steers our antibiotic stewardship program. Mm -hmm. I think they're really helpful, so I hope they know how. I think they're invaluable. Yes, they're brilliant. I sing their praises whenever I get a chance, so thanks for giving me the opportunity again. Oh, yeah. I think that their like extra set of eyes is really great. You know, our ID pharmacists will sometimes come and do presentations on new programs that they're launching and the education that they provide to our group is is really helpful. How about the ID doctors? Any advice for us? I don't know that I have very specific advice for ID doctors. I find it nice to speak face-to-face, and so usually I'll try to connect with them in person because I definitely think the the culture and kind of tempo of things has changed so much so that now you might have all these consultants, but you don't talk to as many of them in person. So that's too bad. Yeah. Their presence is felt in the electronic medical record, but not necessarily face-to-face. So it's, it's, it's actually a very important point. So Grace, I want to thank you very much for joining me on this podcast today. And just as a reminder, this is Paul Sachs, and I've been speaking with Dr. Grace Farris, cartoonist and graphic medicine specialist extraordinaire and chief of hospital medicine at Mount Sinai West in New York. Thanks so much. Thank you, Paul. 